The advice and opinions expressed by the host of Autism Live and her guests are meant solely as suggestion and should not be in any way construed as child-specific advice. The Center for Autism and Related Disorders advises working with a board-certified behavior analyst who has experience with autism before starting any intensive behavioral intervention. Any choices you make in determining your child's treatment are completely at your own discretion. Welcome to Autism Live. I'm Shannon Penrod. We're coming to you live a year later, still from my house. Uh, yes, that's right. Is anybody having flashbacks? Is it like just me or um, it just seems like everything on the news and they just keep talking about it's been a year, it's been a year, it's been a year. And just like a year ago, it has been raining in Los Angeles, which I kind of love. But, you know, there's there's a point, right? <laughs> and the rain is enough. Uh, but it's raining and cold, which is not our usual in LA, which sometimes makes it really fun. But I remember that feeling a year ago when we were ready to hunker down. And, you know, because I'm paranoid, um, we, you know, we had been ready like a good week before the official news that we were all going to hunker down for the great isolation, as many are calling it. And, and I thought, okay, it's okay. You know, we know how to hunker down. We can do this. It's, it's going to work. Um, but then it started to rain and it was cold and we couldn't go out and we couldn't go anywhere. And it felt claustrophobic, um, you know, and I remember saying at the time, if, if I just knew the end of the story, if I just knew the end of the story and knew that we were all going to be okay, then we could ride this out. If I could have a fearectomy and just take the fear and put it over here, then this wouldn't be so bad. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of things are like that in life. I remember saying that when my son was diagnosed on the spectrum and saying, if I just, if somebody could tell me the end of the story and tell me that it's all going to be okay and convince me that it's all going to be okay, I could take the fear out of it and we could just get busy. You know, it's not always possible to have a fearectomy and sometimes our fears are real. And, you know, many people weren't okay in, in this pandemic. And there were many things that happened in this last year that I, I, I would be loath to call okay. You know, everyone I know lost someone and it wasn't necessarily to COVID, but we lost people in a way that is not how we'd like to lose people. You know, my, my dear friend, Joanne Laura, lost her battle with ovarian cancer and it was not how she or I or anyone wanted it to be. Um, and, you know, so we all have a lot of feelings to deal with, but I don't know, it's just like something about this week that that kick it all up because everybody's talking about it. Hey, I'm saying good morning to Angel. I'm saying good morning to Huma. I'm saying hugs to Christina and to Kumar. It's good to see you too. So thrilled that you guys are here, which brings up the point that this show is meant to be interactive. We want to hear your thoughts, your feelings, your questions, your concerns. And... Um, 
especially today, because it's it's you and me, guys. It's it's us, because Bonnie wasn't able to be here today. So we're going to be talking about a lot of different things today, but the thing that matters to me most is what you guys want to be talking about. So we're live right now on YouTube. We're live on Periscope, I think, maybe. Uh, we're live on Facebook Live, and we're live on Twitter. And I really want to talk to you about Twitter, because Twitter is an important one, especially this week. Um, hi, Amy. So thrilled to have you here. But notice uh, Traven is showing you on our screen, if you're watching us live and watching picture and sound, a bunch of different ways that you can connect with us live. Uh, we're live on a bunch. There's DLive, right? We just saw Africa TV and Vaughn Live. So many different places that we're live right now. But I want you to know, and we're live on our homepage right now too, autism-live.com. We also podcast the recorded show. So if you're not able to be with us live, please don't fret because we know you've got busy lives and things to do. We podcast and are available as a free download wherever you get your podcasts. We want you to be able to get the information and also to be able to search topics that you're like, well, you know, I don't have that much time this week. So instead of just tuning into everything that Shannon's got going on, which I love it when you do, let's not be crazy here. I love it when you do that, but sometimes you just don't have time and you're like, I just need information about tantrums today. Then go to our website or go to our YouTube channel and put in a search feature for our channel. Don't go to all of YouTube. I mean, you can, but you won't find, you'll find some of our videos and other people's, but well, maybe that's a good thing to do. I don't know. But put in this search feature, Tantrum, and take a look at what comes up. Um, and I see your question, Christine, and I'm going to get to that. Okay. So uh, that's where we're available. We want to be available to you because what is our mission? To provide information and inspiration. I, I want to feed your soul to the, you know, to the point where you're like, I can do this. You know what I always say here? Si se puede, right? And we hold hands. We do this together. You're not in this alone. More than anything else, I want you to know that you're not in this alone. Now, who is the you that I'm talking to? It's you. Yes, that's right. You, I'm talking to you. And my bigger you, the, the you know, the, the people that we do this show for, really, um, I call it the larger autism community, which I hope one day will be considered the world. Why? Because in that larger autism community, that starts with individuals who are on the spectrum themselves. Yes, they are the beating heart of our community, and they're the beating heart of why we do this show. But I also include in that community absolutely everyone who loves someone on the spectrum. And this is why I say, I hope that Someday that needs to be the world. We're getting closer and closer to that, you know, and we can argue about why are we getting closer and closer to that and, uh, you know, whatever. But here's the point for me. If you love someone who's on the autism spectrum, we welcome you here because as a community, I believe that we there's work to be done. And there's much to be shared and everyone has needs within this community. If you love someone on the spectrum, then you want to know how to best help support them to get to the things that they want. Let's be very clear about that. The things that they want. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I have a front row seat because my son is someone who was diagnosed with autism at the age of two and a half. He's about to be 18 years old. I think we're down into like the, it's below 100 days before he's going to be 18 years old. And he will be 
someone who uh, has the ability to make all of his own choices when he turns 18. That is not necessarily all of our members on the autism spectrum, right? Some of them have to have some of those rights conserved to have support, right? But there's a growing contingent of young people on the autism spectrum who are totally capable and deserve the right to be able to make their own choices, right? And this is a segment of our community we must we have to listen to everybody in our community, right? Listen with our hearts open. Um, but I'm I'm learning all the time about, you know, like any other parent, there's things that I want for my child, but I need to constantly check in with him and say, so what do you want? Listen, we're picking colleges at this point and we have choices and it's like, hey, uh, but it's up to him. It is up to him. As a parent, I get to offer, you know, my, you know, whatever I know which he thinks is this, <laughs> and I think is this, and that's how parenthood is. Um, but he gets to decide in the end, and I'll let you guys know as soon as as soon as we know. But he has choices because he's been accepted so far at four, and we're still waiting to hear from nine colleges. I, just somebody, you know, stick a fork in me, I'm done. Uh, okay. Si se puede, yes. Hola, yes. Okay. Uh, somebody writing in. Good morning. Uh, and I love, Christina said, we would love to pick your brain all day, uh, Shannon, and have you share your experience. That would be an awesome day. That is today. That is today because we didn't get to have our guest, Bonnie. So in any case, uh, we're all here together. We hold hands and, you know, here's the deal. I I'm not an expert. I, I tell you this every day. I'm not an expert. We usually pack the show with experts. I, I'm it today, but I'm not an expert. But I am someone who cares deeply that you get to where you want to get today, that you're able to find the resources and the support and, and to be lifted up to know that you can do this. I don't know what you're facing today, but I know that you can do it. And how do I know that? Because there were many days, listen, if you asked me, I would have told you for sure I couldn't. I couldn't do this. Um, and on every, on any given day, I was hundred percent sure I couldn't do it. And yet somehow one foot in front of the other, we, we did this, we, you know, we're still doing it, but we're moving forward. And, and that is a wonderful thing. Oh, we're going to get to meet in person. Uh, Christine wrote one day I dreamed to meet in person. Oh, we're going to get to meet in person. It's going to happen. It will happen. I, I trust me on that. Uh, okay. So. Uh, I gave you the spiel about I'm not an expert already, so it is time for us to move to the jargon of the day so we can get back to questions. That we, This jargon of the day, this is when we take one word, one phrase, one acronym, we try to figure out what in the hey, nani nani are those experts talking about? Why does this matter? Why should we care? Why Why do you want to suck my time up with jargon, right? Um uh, uh, listen, I, I, I trust me. Somebody else said I want uh, uh, me too. They want to meet me too. I am just waiting for this COVID thing to be over because I got all these, you know, things that I want to do, places I want to go. Uh, so we'll get an opportunity to meet. We'll all, we'll all get an opportunity to meet. Yes, it, some yeah, there have been people that I've wanted to meet in my life, and it just works out. It will work out. I, although I have not yet met Oprah. Somebody, if you, you know, I want to meet Oprah. So there you go. Uh, but we will get an opportunity to meet because I'm available. We're, you know, it happens. Trust me. Okay. So we're at the jargon of the day. Uh, we're, we're taking it one phrase at a time, trying to make sense of it so that we can benefit from that knowledge. Right? I know it seems like, whoo, 
ooh, it's too much sometimes, but just a little bit at a time. So today's, I thought we'd done this before, but apparently we've never done it before. So take a look at what our jargon for the day is. Is it attention-maintained behavior? We talk all the time on the show about the four usual suspects. And lately I've started talking about the fifth um, <laughs> usual suspect because it's like that you know, A-E-I-O-U, and sometimes why? Oh, well, our sometimes why is our fifth uh, uh, usual suspect, but these are the reasons why behavior happens, and it's why all, if we were to take all challenging behavior and put them in an, into a bucket, it would be one of these four, asterisk five, and potentially more than one. So, the next couple of jargons, we're going to be going over these. So attention maintained behavior. What is it? We've all seen it, but can we define it? First, we're going to give you the actual definition, make fun of it, and then we're going to move on to the working definition. So our actual definition here is dun, da, 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 when social positive reinforcement maintains a behavior. Don't you love it when they just take the words that are in the phrase and they rearrange them for it to be the definition? Social positive reinforcement. Well, social positive reinforcement is just a fancy way of saying attention. Uh, and maintaining a behavior, uh, we're going to get to that in just a second. So this, this definition is fairly useless, all right? So let's move on to our working definition here. Uh, working definition of attention-maintained behavior is when the paycheck is attention. And I know we're still using the word in, but I think we all have at least a little bit of a, uh, an idea of what attention looks like. But here's the asterisk there, is that attention is positive for the individual, whether the attention is positive or what we perceive as negative. So don't get caught up in this idea that it has to be positive for it to be positive reinforcement. Positive reinforcement, you know, is just that I got something. I got something. I got a paycheck. I got a paycheck, right? Uh, we just saw the part of the movie um, uh, Jerry Maguire the other day, and I love Cuba Gooding Jr. You know, show me the money, right? Well, this is kind of our kids. This is kind of all of us. We all have a bucket, our own personal size bucket that's how much attention we need to feel good. Every single one of us has this bucket. And when I used to be a school teacher, I would look at my students and I would think of them all as having that bucket right in front of them. And the buckets are different sized. Some people have a little tiny bucket and anything more than a little bit of attention and they don't like it. It's no longer positive for them. They don't, it's like, please take, take that away. I don't want to be seen. I'm shy. I don't want, don't make me stand in front of the classroom and have everybody applaud me. They just don't want that, right? Then there are other people whose bucket is a swimming pool. And I think you know some people who are like that, right? Now, this is not necessarily a bad thing if we're aware of it and if we understand that that's what's happening. Take a look at some celebrities, right? Um, you know, people, look, I have a pretty big, good-sized bucket of attention, uh, probably bigger than a lot of other people. People who are in the public eye have to, that has to be reinforcing to them on some level, or they engage in challenging behavior to escape it, right? And we've seen that behavior too. 
But there are a lot of celebrities that we see that they are so attention maintained that they need to have it. And it's like a drug. They got to have it. They got to have it. And they got to have it. And just like our kiddos, if they're not getting enough attention, then they will take negative attention. When you're being mean to them, they'll take it. When you're yelling at them, they'll take it because it fills the need. And that's a little dicey because I think we all go, I don't understand that. They did that and they got in trouble and they knew that they were going to get in trouble. That doesn't make any sense unless you understand that what it is is that they need attention. And here's the thing about that is that if you give them good attention, they'd rather have that and they will choose that over the being yelled at. So this is power. Knowledge is power, right? So for instance, when I was a school teacher and standing in front of a classroom, sometimes the, my biggest class, I think, had 54 students in it. High school students, yes. Um, and all with their own little buckets, right? And it becomes imperative for me as the teacher to look and go, who are my kids that have the biggest buckets, right? Because they're either going to sink my battleship or they're going to make my day. And that's a great way to look at it because if you understand attention and if I knew, okay, I got these five kids that are most likely to be disruptive in this classroom. And if any one of them becomes disruptive, I lose, everybody's going to give them their attention because these kids are good at getting attention and I'd lose the class for the day. So instead I would start the day by giving those five people tons of attention, tons of attention. Like I might start the day when they come in the door, I make sure I'm there to greet them. I'm saying hello to everyone, but I'm making sure that I make eye contact and say, you know, Michael, I'm so glad you're here today. I got to ask you something, right? Attention to putting stuff in the bucket, right? Getting the bucket primed so that we don't get to deficit, right? And then I might say, Shaleen, I, I need somebody to pass out papers. You're really good at that. Can you come pass out these papers? That's attention right? And I say, great job, Michael, uh, you know, way to pass those papers back, right? Giving that attention beforehand. And this is a big deal with attention because if I know somebody needs it, then I want to be giving it to them in the proper way, in the proper moment. I want to be doing antecedent modification, antecedent modification. I want to get there before we get to a problem where the bucket is empty and they got to act out. And when I would do that, took a little bit of energy on my part, not a lot, a little bit of energy. We start the class and everything is going, I got to keep giving the attention though. And I got to be mindful that if I don't give, you know, Becky attention every three minutes, I'm going to have a problem. And then once I got a problem, I got to deal with consequences and consequences are hard with attention because then, you know, I have to not pay attention to the behavior. So here's the thing with attention. If you can build up that antecedent, what happens before, give them all the attention in the world so that you don't get to the problem. But if you do get to the problem, and by the way, we also want to be teaching them how do you appropriately ask for attention? Raise your hand in a classroom. When you're a kiddo at home and mom is on the phone and you want attention, we teach them how to tap on mom's shoulder and say, excuse me, or to sign excuse me, or to to point to, I need help on, on an iPad or exchange, picture exchange, whatever the mode of communication is, we teach them how to appropriately 
ask for attention. We talked about this with the BIP thing the other day. Got to teach the skill that's missing, right? But at how to appropriately ask for attention, right? But if we get to all else failed in our behavior intervention plan, we didn't remember to give attention beforehand. We did, we, and by the way, we, we don't teach in the middle of the behavior, we teach outside the behavior, but they didn't use the skill that they learned or we haven't finished teaching it, whatever. And we got to the thing where they're acting out for attention. That is the hard part because you cannot give attention to a behavior that is not, uh, you know, uh, what we consider a challenging behavior. So in the classroom, that's that, you know, somebody spits. I had a student throw a battery at my head for attention. And uh, it just so happened that I, it missed. I felt it whiz past my hair and it hit the blackboard and cracked the chalkboard, cracked it. And it was meant for my head. And you know what my reaction was? Nothing. And I continued on with the spelling test that I was giving. And I acted like nothing happened because if I had said, what on earth do you think you're doing? Um, it's just cha-ching, cha-ching, cha-ching in the bank. I could have, it would have been within my rights as a teacher to be like, go to the principal's office, right? Um, but now he got out of the spelling test and he got attention and everybody in the class would be like, woo, and it would take me 10 minutes to get back to the spelling test. Hard? Yes. But what it did in that moment was it taught all of my students you throw a battery at her head, it doesn't get you the attention you want. So no more batteries were thrown at my head. It's self-preservation. So that non-reaction, right, um, is absolutely imperative. Often people will say, oh, we got to ignore your child. I'm really fussy about that because I think it's really important that we language these things. We're not ignoring anyone. We're ignoring a behavior. And if we can start to think of it that way, we ignore the behavior, not the child. Um, I had a parent once who said, well, you know, they told me to ignore them. So uh, they were doing whatever. And I put them in the room and I closed the door. And this was like a very young child. And, and I was like, what? Then how do you know that they're okay? Well, but I need to ignore them. And for me, this is, this is not the ticket. And I don't think there's anybody doing good quality ABA that's espousing, ignoring the child or putting them in a room by themselves. Unless you have really good cameras that can see everything that's going on, I just don't think, I think that's a safety issue, right? But we can ignore the behavior, right? And, and we just don't give the paycheck for the behavior. And sometimes it's just a waiting game thing, right? Where the, let's say the child spits and you just, and, and the child spits again and you're looking, 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 looking. You wait until there's like a five second beat and then you can say something like, oh, like, I don't, I don't know where, where your stuffed animal is, right? You do not give behavior to the spitting, but now the child is like my stuffed animal and they come over and they, they show you the stuffed animal and you go, there it is. And you are loving to them and you don't go, you shouldn't be spitting, right? That's not a part of it. So uh, knowing when the paycheck is attention and then all, as always with all of these things, we don't want to give the person what it is they're seeking. So with attention, if they're engaging in uh, att uh, um, attention-maintained behavior, we don't want to give that behavior attention. 
Five seconds later, we can give attention for something else, or we can ask a question and then give attention to that, right? But we're not giving, we're, we're cutting off the blood supply to this behavior. So this is going to be important when we start to talk about uh, everything else. Parker, I see your question. I'm going to get to it. Hi, S. Uh, okay, so moving on, let's go to the question of the day. How do you get attention? So when you need attention, and I want you to think about different people in your life and how do you get attention. So if you need to get attention from, let's say, your significant other, what does that look like? If you need to get attention from your child, what does that look like? When you need to get attention at work because you want to you know, a pat on the back for what you're doing at work. What do you do to get attention? If you're standing in line at a store, what do you do to get someone's attention? Like there's a million and eight ways to get attention and they're not all vocal, right? Um, it's all verbal behavior. It's one of the things that makes me nuts when we talk about somebody being nonverbal. Verbal behavior is not necessarily vocal. In fact, the um, the vast majority of behavior is not vocal behavior. And I see that somebody said something very honestly. They said, I use the silent treatment. And, you know, that's something that a lot of people use in a lot of different ways. But isn't that interesting that that's a way that we can get attention is by not being vocal, being noticeably non-vocal which is a very, very interesting thing to do. And if it gets attention, then we do it more often, right? Uh, I find that in, in the world that, um, I, I don't wanna be overgeneralizing, but sometimes I have a lot of women friends who say that this is something that they use with their husbands because we tend to be so vocal as women that we get that. And so when we quiet down, that's when sometimes people of the other sex go, uh-oh, something's wrong. Something's wrong because something's not the way that it was before. And they start to go, what happened here? I was just saying something to the somebody the other day that my husband knows that uh, if I get quiet, it's like, ooh, something, something's not entirely right because it's the iceberg, right? <laughs> something really going on. But if I get to the point where I write a letter and leave it on his pillow, then he knows that poo has hit the fan, right? Because sometimes I am too upset to talk and I want to get it right. And I don't want to be interrupted. I want to be in control of what I say. And so I write it out. And boy, that's only happened a couple of times. But, you know, that certainly gets my husband's attention. So, but my point here is that we engage in a lot of different ways to get attention. Uh, when I was a child, I learned that, you know, big family, lots going on, but if I was funny, it got everybody's attention. So I learned funny equals attention and went on to be a stand-up comedian. So, you know, I, I mean, these things start early. Uh, and I knew that I, if I was funny, it was like people, people saw that, right? So what, what do you do and, and, and why do you do it so that you can understand from the point of other, other people, why are they doing what they're doing? Okay. Uh, all right. 
so let's move on to our topic. I'm just reading the comments from you guys. We're going to get to all of these in just a second. Let's move on to our topic for the week, which is the four usual suspects with the asterisk. Sometimes there's a fifth. So the four usual suspects, the reason why anybody does things that are not necessarily, we call them the challenging behaviors because they're not really um, fulfilling the highest function of what the function is that they're trying to get. So for instance, if I'm engaged in uh, attention maintained behavior, I I want it no matter what, and it can even be attention that's harmful to me, right? I will wreck the place to get the attention that I want. We've seen kids do this on many occasions. They want the attention. You're on the phone. They want your attention. And so, you know, even to the point of harming themselves, they'll do something to get your attention. So we call that maladaptive because it's not really fulfilling the need of the person um, because what they, I mean, they, they're getting the attention, but it's not something that's going to be helpful for them throughout their life. It's counterproductive. It's productive in the moment, which makes it difficult, but it's counterproductive. So attention, uh, escape. Sometimes we all want to escape something or someone, and we will behave in ways that aren't to our ultimate benefit, but we want to get away from a feeling or a sound or a person or a pain, right? And we will do things to get away from it. Uh, third one is that we want access to someone or something. They call it tangible. We, you know, we want that thing or that person and boy, howdy, people will do all kinds of things that are counterproductive for them just to have access. And I'm not just talking about folks on the spectrum here. Uh, you know, I, I've had, uh, I have one girlfriend that, you know, became obsessed with an ex-boyfriend And, you know, heaven help us all the things that she was doing just to be able to be near him. Not good, right? And not good for her. She didn't didn't care in the moment. She wanted to be where he was. So, and that can be a real problem. Not on the spectrum. Uh, Okay. And then the last one, which is the hardest one to diagnose and the hardest one to crack is when it is automatically reinforcing. There is something on the inside that makes it feel good. This is the hardest one because especially when we're dealing with individuals on the spectrum who don't necessarily have the ability to communicate why it's working for them, it makes it harder to fulfill and replace that with something that gives the same thing. But can I just for a moment say that the critical, critical, critical part here for me is that each one of these things that we're talking about, there's a need that needs to be fulfilled. And we cannot even begin to effectively change that behavior until we understand what the need is and we fill it another way. It's happening for a reason. And, you know, it's kind of like knitting a sweater, right? And the, and the behavior is in the middle of the sweater and it's holding a whole bunch of things together. It may be counterproductive long-term to success, but it's holding the sweater together and you can't just rip it out and go, the sweater maintains itself without it. It's not going to. That's uh, there for a reason. And if you try to have the behavior ectomy without trying to fill it with something else that fills the same need, you're going to escalate the person's need to get it and you're going to put them in danger and yourself in danger. So we don't do any of that. Yeah. And of course the fifth suspect, which usually we only talk about with kids that are older, but I'm starting to hear parents 
tell me things. I don't mean to laugh because it's a very serious business, but kids as young as five and six where control is the fifth um, usual suspect, that control, just pure having control of a situation um, can be enough for it to be maintained. And that's a tough one because I'm, anxiety will happen if they don't have control. Yeah. Uh, okay. So those are our four usual suspects. Now, uh, normally we would have Bonnie here, but uh, Bonnie is not able to be with us today. And while that's a bummer, I do want to tell you that if you need to get a hold of her, try the Toner Law Offices. And that's if you're in California or Arizona or Nevada, maybe just California now. I don't know. Check out their website, specialeducationcouncil.com. And Bonnie always advocates that if you need uh, an attorney or an advocate to check out COPA, C-O-P-A-A.net, or COPA.org, they'll both get you there. It's the Council of Parent Advocates and Attorneys is what COPA stands for, I believe. Okay, so let's get to your questions here, you guys, because you guys have written in a lot of really great things. So starting with how can I help my son self-regulate in public outings? He usually climbs me like a tree. Yeah. So um, a lot of what we're going to talk about, um, it, you know, when we're talking about autism has to do with sensory. So I love um, great OTs and great clinicians who try to put themselves in the individual's shoes for a minute to go, what does it feel like to be this person? And we can learn so much by listening to adults on the spectrum talk about their experience as a child and what were the sensory issues that they were dealing with. And my son is someone who, on the cusp of being an adult, but this is a behavior that he used to do. He would try to climb me like I was a tree. And I could be sitting or I could be standing, but there was a certain point in the program, right, where he, both my husband and I, he would climb us like we were trees, like he wanted to sit on my head. And I have almost no neck, as you can see, and it was not a great feeling. My kid was always a big kid. Um, you know, he was like the tallest two-year-old in the state of California when they measured him. And, you know, so he was a big kid and putting all of that pressure on your head especially if you're on an outing and you're trying to keep everything safe and you're trying to be aware and you've got your purse and, and, you know, and you got this kid climbing you like he's a tree. So, you know, I have been there and done that. And one of the things I want to talk, first of all, you know, from how we talk to him now and say, so what was going on? And we're a little bit reliant on his memory, but I've also talked to other folks on the spectrum too. And, you know, he, his memory isn't great from that period of time because he didn't have language. And when you don't have language, you, it's hard to categorize memories into folders. But he, my son does say that, um, that he had this need um, and it was twofold. It was that he wanted to see what was happening and it was clear to him that he couldn't. And there had been many times when he was a little bit younger that, and even around that age that my husband would put him on his shoulders so that he could see. And then as, as far as my son was concerned, that was the good viewpoint. Why wouldn't everyone always want to be on someone's shoulders? Right. Um, but also there was this need to connect and where I, you know, I, I've been to Disneyland now in about a year and a half, but I, I both, 
love and I will say it's a little bit like a bruise when we go to Disneyland, like a bruise that you can't keep your hand off of that you, you push against it. But I love to watch children at Disneyland and how they interact with their parents because I didn't get what I see a lot of the time at Disneyland where that joint attention thing where, you know, I, I, I can't ride the ride. So I bring a book and I sit there and I people watch and I watch the kids and I'll see, you know, the little girl walking next to her mom. And she's clearly like two and a half years old and she's walking next to her mom and her mom doesn't even have to hold her hand in Disneyland. And the child is not running away, constantly is checking in, seeing that mom is there and there's no desire to run away. I don't know from this, right? I didn't have this experience as a parent. Uh, I had to have my son on a leash at that age, right? Because he would just run, run to feel the wind in his hair with no consideration of where I was or safety or anything like that, right? But also that the child is there having the experience with the mom and, and the child sees Mickey Mouse across the, the courtyard and goes, oh, and the first thing she does is she turns and she looks at her mom and her mom looks at her face and then looks, oh, it's Mickey Mouse and looks back at the child and they have this moment together. Well, I didn't have that with my son. And, you know, it's very easy for people to say it's because our kids aren't tuned into us. They're not dialed into us. That's not the experience that my son details. My son details that he wanted connection. He just didn't know what it looked like. And so he would climb us like we were trees. So that was his take on it. But I can tell you that what we were told to do was to give him um, stimulus on his skin. We were told some kids like brushing. They have those brushes that you can get from a massage therapy place. And they're, they're these very soft brushes and it feels very good. It's, it's, you know, sensory on the skin and some kids, you just brush them and they're happy and they are self-regulated for like 45 minutes after you brush them. Uh, great. Other kids, you know, they got to be brushed every five minutes and they're regulated for four minutes. Right. Um, the brushing didn't really do it for my son. I got to be honest, but he liked the squeezes. So um, it's that thing when you burrito a baby in their blanket and the first day in the hospital and they teach you how to do that. And they say to you that the reason why you do that is because the baby is used to being in the womb and they feel like they're falling if you don't burrito them, right? Well, you know, some of our kids like the sensation of being squeezed. Temple Grandin liked the sensation of being squeezed. And, and she discovered she liked that because she saw that squeezing helped to calm the cows that she was tending. So, and then she was like, well, I want to know what it feels like in there. And the machine squished her and she was like, I feel better. This helps my anxiety. So for my son, um, the therapist would come in and they would uh, we had these couch cushions. The couch cushions were never on the couch. They would take him and squeeze him in the, inside the couch cushions. He would laugh hysterically and then they could get more work done. Um, and it became this thing they call it a sensory diet where every, you know, in the beginning it was every 20 minutes, right. Um, that we would squeeze him and put him inside a blanket and give him a big squeeze, whatever. We found one of the places that we went to, the sensory gym, they had this um, purple spandex socky thing that was suspended from the ceiling. And he would get in it and he would put himself upside down in it and then he could spin. 
And he could do things after being upside down and spinning he couldn't do before. Like we could work on language and actually get someplace on it. Uh, and I was like, what is this? And, and the OT said, oh, yes, he's one of those kids that if, if you have him upside down and spinning, <laughs> he can access the portion of his brain where his language is. And I said, did you just tell me my child is a bat that he needs to hang upside down and spin? And, uh, and she was like, well, no, but if you did it every once in a while, we looked into the astronaut training program. It's an OT thing where they, um, you know, you can make a turntable. They have plans for it online, or you can take an office chair, which is what we did. And there's a whole thing that you sit the child up and you spin 10 spins to the left and 10 spins to the right. Then you lay the child on their left side, 10 spins to the left, 10 spins to the right. Now you lay them on the right side, 10 spins to the left, 10 spins to the right. And it's this whole protocol. And you really have to follow all the different steps because there's like, I don't know, 12 different positions. But at the end, you know, the child sits up and for some kids, it regulates whatever is going on in their brain. And for some kids, they can talk in that moment. We, uh, we saw that that helped him and helped him to gain language. We didn't have to do it every hour, but if we did it once a day, we found that it was helping him. We also took him to Disneyland and he was on the teacups. Um, and my child who wasn't talking much he got off the teacups and he said like four words together. And I went, what is this about? So there is this whole thing going on in their head and there's, you know, your, there's your inner ear and it puts pressure on things. Some of our kids, um, it's oversensitive and they can't be spun. They get sick. Like if you spun me 10 times in one direction on an office chair, that'd be it for me for the day. I can't ride the teacups. I just told you, I can't be on any ride. I Mine is oversensitive. I turn my head to the left and it's like, it takes a minute for things to get back. My child, for whatever reason, it's like I got all of that for him and he didn't get any. So he had to have, when he was a child, he had to have that part of his brain woken up. That, oh, the vestibular, uh, whatever they call it, I'm, I don't know the terms. If we had a good OT here, they would be like, yes, you know, and know all the different parts of it. So many different things that we did, but we saw that some of that helped. And the first step is to see, you know, if I do this, does that help? I know you shared that your child likes to jump. So maybe, maybe this kind of thing would help him because maybe the jumping is helping to awaken that part of his brain. Um, so you try it first to see if it helps. And if it does, then you do it as frequently as you need to do it. But you get to a point where you need to teach something to them so that they can control it themselves, that they don't have to sit on an office chair and be spun by somebody else, that they have a way of having that need met for themselves. So for my son, who was needing this regular squeezing, what we did was when he went off to kindergarten, we taught him how to squeeze himself. Because here's the other thing, he kept going up to other kids and hugging them. And in pre-K, it wasn't really approved of, but they kind of put up with it. But in kindergarten, the kids go, hey, get off of me, right? What are you doing? And once you get to second grade, ooh, it's like bad things can happen. So we taught him how to hold on to his elbow, I don't know if you guys can see, and, and push. 
So you can be standing and you can't, I've got my shoulders way up, but I want you to see, you can be standing with your arms like this, right? But you can be applying a great deal of pressure and no one can see it, right? You can also, um, we taught him how to be squeezing his hands. We had heard of one little boy that had so much anxiety when he would go into kindergarten, but, uh, and especially when they would sit on the carpet it's just too much for him, right? And they taught him how to massage his own feet because they saw that whenever they massaged his feet that he would calm down and he could do carpet time uh, the whole time and listen to the story. So they taught him how to massage his feet. Look at what you do when you have to be someplace and you have to be listening to somebody for long periods of time. Um, a lot of us are people who cannot bear to sit and do nothing with our hands. I know women who come to a meeting and they have lotion and at some point in the meeting, they'll take the lotion out and they put the lotion on their hands and it's totally acceptable in a business meeting. It was like, Oh, you know, she's putting her lotion on in a business meeting. But I know that part of it is they're self-regulating. We all self-regulate in lots of different ways. You know, some people simply cross their legs and that's, you know, that's their way of having enough movement happening to stay focused. It's almost impossible to sit completely still. I mean, I know some monks who can do it, but very few people can sit completely still. And part of it is knowing where your space, where your space is and where you are in space. So I don't, I don't know which things like it might be partially that he's doing it for connection. It might be so that he's doing it for the stimulus. It might be partially for the visual because I get a better view. I would say, look at it and see if you, which elements of that you see and how can you give it to him without having him climb you? We saw very clearly that if we every hour gave my son this little kind of massage on his head where we just sort of, you know, squeezed his head, not hard, but just squeezed his head, he didn't have to get on our heads. He just didn't have to. And it came down to that much of a simple thing that if we just squeezed his head and I watch him now, he'll be in class and he'll be doing things like this totally acceptable, right? Or he'll go like this, you know, put his hand on his head, um, you know, and, and nobody realizes what he's doing. Or, you know, he gives himself a little massage now and is in the, totally acceptable in class. And I don't even know if he realizes what that is tied to from his childhood, but it's the way he self-regulates. So does that make sense? Is that at all helpful to you? Um, I'm looking at what the comments are. Uh, is there regression in social skills? I feel that my social skills have been regressing since the pandemic. Can I just tell you, we have all regressed in social skills. All of us have regressed in social skills. So here's the good news with that is that that means that everybody's feeling it. Um, and so, uh, Everybody should be a little bit more cognizant and a little bit more accepting and, and patient. It's not necessarily what's going to, everyone has regressed with social skills. So the bigger question is what can we all be doing to improve? Well, self-knowledge is the first thing, right? Understanding that, oh, okay, you know, my social skills have regressed, um, but get as specific as possible. Like I, 
I just interrupt people all the time. And I noticed this recently. I was like, what a buffoon am I? I need to learn to stop. And I just am trying to be aware of it. And when I do it to say, I'm so sorry, I am interrupting you. Um, but I have been telling people too, it is so hard for me on Zoom or on the phone to know when somebody is done. Like I just, I, I don't know when my place is to jump in because it's always been, you know, a, a conglomeration of, uh, you know, being able to see and hear and hear them breathe. And I'm missing that in the formats that we're using. So being aware of it, you know, apologize when, when in the moment when you can, but start to put yourself in circumstances with somebody you trust to try to work on it. Um, I really want to encourage you. There's so many great groups, but my favorite is the Ed Asner Family Center has an adult movie chat. There's actually two of them now that Chelsea Darnell does is free. You just have to register, go to the Ed Asner Family, and it's a safe place to try out your social skills. You chat about a movie. It's totally fun. Um, okay. And for the question of the day, what do you do for, to get attention? Somebody said, I also do a lot of extreme cleaning. If my older kids visit, uh, I am cleaning and they give me space. Interesting. So it's a way of, when you're cleaning, it's a way of communicating. I want to be left alone. Um, that's an interesting thing. Uh, uh, an FBA on outing behavior would be awesome. You can ask for that. You can ask your team to do a functional behavior assessment on an outing. You absolutely can ask for that. Um, so, oh, yeah, sensory can be a living hell. I used to run away and hide as a child. Sensory toys are key. Also, you have got to teach your child, your kids safety. Yes, absolutely. I agree with you completely, Parker. A lot of times our kids will run away from a sensation and they will run directly into danger. And it is so important that we teach our kids well in advance of something happening. You know, the story I always go back to is Romario Snow who is an amazing young man. I, I just don't know anybody who's kinder or more gentle in the world than Romario. And, but Romario cannot stand violence of any kind. And it isn't something that, you know, you can really define. If he sees it, he runs. And he is a runner. He runs in marathons. He's a very talented runner. It's a way that he self-regulates is that he runs. And when he is presented with something that triggers that, uh, you know, that's violence, he will run. And he is not able to stop himself. You know, I mean, people say, well, he can, no, he's, it's like, he's not able to, right? And so there was one day when he was in a store with his mom and uh, he has two little sisters who are the cutest little things on the face of the planet. And they were very little, they were in strollers and they were in a store and you know how stores a lot of times have TV sets now and the owner's watching a show on TV and it was the news and it was something violent that they had said, you know, that may not be appropriate for certain audiences and it wasn't appropriate for Romario. And the mom who was seeing this was saying, Romario, stay calm. And she was saying to the, can you please turn it off? Can you please, but it was taking too long. And the guy was like, what do you mean? And and by that point, Romario ran out of the store and she's got the two kids in the stroller and she's running after him. But, you know, he's a marathon runner and he was gone, gone. And for 27 days, she looked for him on the streets and she found him on the 27th day. I can't even imagine. 
as a parent. I cannot even imagine, nor can I imagine what this sweet soul went through 27 days living on the streets. And when she found him, he was barely recognizable um, and it was traumatic. And he can tell you, he has a very limited vocal ability, but he can tell you that it was traumatic for him those 27 days and that all he wanted was to come home. Um, but he didn't know how to request that. So, um, you know, there were many things that were done and they were teaching Romario his address. Um, but, you know, it's very difficult if, if someone is afraid, you know, they can't walk up to people. And even, you know, even if he had a tattooed on his arm, which was one of the things that was discussed, you know, what if they move so on and so forth, but uh, temporary tattoo. Right. Um, but, you know, he has to feel comfortable enough to go up to somebody and he, and he doesn't because he's afraid. Right. Um, so in any case, he had a watch that could, you know, show where he was, but the watch didn't always work and the battery died and blah, 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 blah. So uh, Romario went to run a marathon a couple of years ago and there was help and support. There was someone to run with him. Great. It's wonderful. But the runner got hurt and it was okay. And he, Romario made it to the finish line. His mom, you know, talked to him and a worker at the finish line and said he's there. And she was stuck in traffic and cause you have to get to the finish line to pick him up and she couldn't get there. So he was going to have to wait. By the time she got there, he was gone, gone for two days before they found him again the second time. You know, I mean, these are very real things and it's, and I, his mom is the best at looking at like, how do I do this to keep him safe? What can we do? It's not an easy equation because you got to think in a bunch of different ways, but yes, Romario has since been taught a bunch of different things um, for safety. Um, but, you know, we, we do everything we can, but it's really hard to be completely a hundred percent sure but we can't act like we don't know that this is a very real thing for all of our kids that they, we know that they elope. It's, it's the number one cause of death um, on the spectrum. And you know what the number two cause is being hit by a car while eloping. Um, pretty horrible. Uh, okay. Any videos of fears of dog or mascots? He's 12 nonverbal and many workers always leave the stores if there, uh, if there is service dogs. Um, I, you know, that would be a systematic desensitization, um, for dogs and for mascots. And you could either work with an ABA professional who knows how to do systematic desensitization or, um, for a 12, um, I don't know because you say he's nonverbal, so I don't know what his level of understanding is, but if you feel that his receptive language, he's able to hear things and understand them, um, it might be, uh, he might be just old enough to go to a cognitive behavioral therapist to help work on the systematic desensitization. Um, but I think, um, your ABA team should be able to do it as well. Um, Okay. Uh, I want the astronauts thing. He would love that. OMG. Uh, my son is the same. Yeah. If you, if you put in, um, astronaut, um, training in, into the Google search, but put it in with occupational therapy, it was very big in the early two thousands. I don't hear a whole lot of people doing it anymore. And I don't know why, um, because it was, 
I watched, there was one little boy that my son was in early intervention with. We, they were in this group and, you know, you brought your child over to the center and there was a time of day where they all did a group thing together. It was torture for me and we got kicked out of it, but uh, we did it for a while. And then there were other times where you would come and your child could have speech or OT at the same center. So you'd see a lot of the same people. And one of the little boys that was in his group uh, who was very well behaved, but there was no talking happening. There was no talking. There were no sounds. And I knew that his parents were just despairing of it. And I watched them take him into the room and you could see they had windows, right? That the kids couldn't see through, but you could watch. And I, and they said, watch, we're going to do this astronaut training session with him and you can watch to see what it is. And I watched them, they just, you know, it's basically like a lazy Susan. There was a turntable with a piece of wood on it. And they, you know, sat him up, laid him down, sat him up, spun him, did all the things. And, and then he went right from there to his speech session. And that kid was talking. And I went, hello, that's something right there. Uh, that is something <laughs> right there. Um, so I don't know why we don't hear more about it as much anymore, but Google it. It's, it's there. Uh, and she says, yes, my son has high vestibular needs. Well, those are the kids that tend to do well with um, the astronaut training program. But it's usually done by an OT. We were taught it and then we were given a sheet of paper and we went home and I had the stuff to make the turntable and I never got around to it because while we were waiting, there was like the one piece that I ordered from Home Depot that was Lazy Susan. And while we were waiting for that, I said, well, I'm just going to do it in the office chair because I was told that I could. He was still little enough that I could. And the office chair worked just fine. And I never put the turntable together because that's how this mama rolls. Uh, we are just about out of time here. I don't know where the hour has gone. And I still have something very important to say to you guys. On Friday, we did something on the show. We talked about Bill Maher and we talked about what's happening with the Department of Defense and what they are doing with the silliness uh, that they are saying that ABA is not effective, which, you know, that's a that's an argument I am totally prepared to have. Like, let's have that argument. But you've got to fight fair and you can't take data and say the way we're interpreting this data is by using the PDVBI and then not do that properly. And the gentleman who created the PDVBI, I want to say those letters right, um, has come forward and written a report and accused the Department of Defense of using his system incorrectly to the point where he says it's clear they didn't read the manual. That is what he is saying. And every other, you know, um, rights group uh, internally in, in the army uh, and, and in the military and externally is crying foul, saying you have not done this correctly. But the DOD has determined, based on this data, that ABA is not effective. And so... Any minute now, our expectation is, because they follow very strict guidelines, we will only pay through our insurance for things that are effective. Get it. Makes sense. I would only do that too. But you have to deter, you have to play fair. You can't say it's ineffective when the tool you used, you didn't use right. And it's not the only problem. But I want us to start there because that's how completely you know what this is. It's messed up. 
So um, I would love to think that the DOD would listen to this little show and go, hey, you know, Shannon and this group of parents, you know, they figured us out. We can't do this. But we all know that's not how this works. We need big guns. Tweet at Bill Maher. It's on our Facebook right now. Tweet at Bill Maher and say to him, hashtag give Bill solar. Why? Because Bill Maher wants solar and he is stuck in, he knows that it's good for the environment. He knows it's good for his house. He knows it's what's right, but he can't get through the red tape. What does that sound like to you? We know ABA works. We know that it's right for our kids. We know that it should be funded by our U.S. military. We know that it's effective, but we can't get through this red tape because silly people didn't read the manual on how to, to how to judge things. So we need to enlist Bill Maher. We need to enlist him now. I'm begging you, please get a Twitter account if you don't have one. Follow Bill Maher. Go in and tweet at him, at Bill Maher. Tweet him, hashtag give Bill solar and say, Bill, please cover this story. Let's, let's encourage him. Um, and, and I, I told you something that he said two weeks ago that I thought crossed the line. And I said, but let's, you know, let's not cancel Bill Maher. Let's be the community that doesn't, we can be, we can be like, Bill, that was wrong. Right. And we can help to, him to educate and understand why it's wrong, but rather let's recruit him for something that we really need that he can really help us with. So hashtag give Bill solar at Bill Maher. Please go to our Facebook. The, the link is there. You can just take it and go to Twitter and tweet that video at him. Let's get him to cover this story. Uh, I just want to acknowledge Judy says, thanks, but our ABA team isn't the best because his understanding isn't good. Just runs in the road. Oh, I'll keep researching and I won't give up. Okay. Years ago, when we had Dr. Jonathan Tarbox on the show, he said at one point, and I'm never going to forget it as long as I live. He said, I want you to right now imagine that your child who's a runner looks up at you and says, mom, dad, whatever your relationship is, I want you to know that the next time that this happens, I am going to run and I'm going to run into the road. And that if your child had the ability to say that to you right now, what would you do? What would you do? How panicked would you be? What, what locks would you put on the door? What system would you install? What expert would you hire? What would you do? And his thing was do that. And I, I don't know what your circumstances are, but if your ABA team is not working on safety and reinforcing his safe behavior and giving him a looking at what the function of when he runs is and giving him a replacement. I want you to scream bloody murder today. I want you to call them up and say, I need help with this today. I want you to call, you know, uh, I don't know what state you're in. Um, what state are you in, Judy? I want, I want to know right now what state you're in, because there are some other things that may be helpful to you. I want you to, you know, do everything that you can because otherwise, uh, you know, that's what we got to do to keep your child safe. But what state are you in, Judy? Because some places have um, Pennsylvania. Okay. Some places have support. So you're in Pennsylvania and you know what you have there? You have the Eagles and the Eagles give money to autism. 
If I were you, I would call the Eagles Autism Organization and say, I need help today. My child is a runner. I need a tracking device. I need a specialist to come over here and look at locks. And I need access to someone who can help my child to not do this when this happens. I would call them today and, and start chasing them down and saying, I need help here. They, they just raised $2.3 million. Get a piece of it, Judy, to use towards keeping your child safe. Um, I know that they're super helpful and they probably have some great resources on the ground in Pennsylvania that I'm not aware of. Um, so please call them today. The Eagles Autism Association call, or if you can't find them, call the Eagles office. Um, we've had them on the show before. Tell them I sent you, um, but you need help. You cannot do this by yourself. Um, and you need help. Okay. I mean, you let me know how it goes. Um, I know you, you said I'm not giving up and I know you aren't, but you need help and you need help today. I feel that, um, very strongly. I'm sending you love. Please let me know what happens and please let me know if you need me to call them. All right. Uh, we've got to go. We're past time. Uh, much love to all of you. We're back tomorrow with best of Temple Grandin on Wednesday. We have Dr. Doreen on Thursday. <gasps> we have Danny Bowman wonderful young filmmaker, uh, identifies as being a self-advocate on the spectrum. She is so fabulous and so inspirational. Just finished getting her master's degree. And I think she's going for a PhD now. We'll, we'll talk to her about that. And um, then on Friday, we are welcoming back Yadira Calderon and her lovely rainbow Moisha and uh, talking about her new book. So you're going to love that. It's really an artistic week, which I absolutely love. All right. I will see you guys tomorrow. Until then, give your kiddos a hug from me and one for you too. Bye-bye for now.